Edward Moser is a historian, tour guide, and author. His latest book is called The Lost History of the Capitol. It's an account of many bizarre, tragic, and violent episodes around the U.S. Capitol building from the founding of the federal city in 1790 up to contemporary times. Among many accomplishments in his career, Ed Moser has been a speechwriter for George Herbert Walker Bush and a writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Ed Moser, author of The Lost History of the Capitol, I see in your background that you were an intern in the United States Senate years ago. Who'd you work for? That was with a fellow named Chick Hecht, like in the Hecht department stores out out in Nevada, or Nevada as they call it. I was an intern for a while, did uh, work at the Trade Association, uh, National Academy of Sciences. So I got some had some background in the workings of D.C. before going on and writing books about it. What did you take away from being an intern in a Senate office? The if you, Well, if you wanted to uh, rise up the ladder, uh, you get into the committees and uh, work very hard for not much pay. And uh, then uh, a lot of people would move on to trade associations or lobbying or even run for office themselves. A lot of hard work and uh, nose to the grindstone if you want to stick with it. It says in the flap of your book that you wrote speeches for George Herbert Walker Bush. Can you tell us what kind of thing you did for him? Yes, it was a speech writing, a political speech. It was, it was very, uh, it was very lucky on my part. Uh, I like uh, expository writing, and I just took a bunch of my best uh, expository writing speeches, just stuff I had done on my own, and I sent it off to the White House. And to my surprise, I got the. Uh, word back from the, the deputy uh, White House chief of staff, Robert Zellick at the time, before he went on to the World Bank. And uh, he said, we love your stuff. Keep sending stuff to us. And so I did, I did that for a while. I saw a quote of yours where you say that frustrated over the great cost and effort expended futilely in the attempt to switch careers and seized by the feeling that I could analyze and write about public affairs as well as most p- pundits, I desperately took up polemical writing. Well, yeah, I, I do like I do like polemical writing, expository writing. Uh, my background is kind of varied. I've done science writing uh, for the likes of Abbott Labs. I've done a lot of technical writing for IT companies. Uh, a real passion of mine, though, is history, uh, politics, and uh, so sort of on my own, I I just got back into that career and started writing uh, stories and then books about it. You wrote a book called The White House's Unruly Neighborhood a couple years ago. What was in that one? It's similar. It's sort of a uh, a prequel to the Capitol book. Uh, in in I'm a tour guide among other things, and in do, giving many tours, many walks about uh, Lafayette Square outside the White House, I was astonished at the number of uh, scandals and violent incidents that have occurred there over 220 years. And so I put together tours, and then uh, wrote a wrote a quick article, and then that turned into a, a book proposal and a book uh, from. Uh, uh, all the way uh, into more modern times, like the uh, attempted assassination of, of Harry uh, Truman in 1950, but going back to the early days of Washington, D.C. as well. Who do you take on tour? It's a, uh, a meet I use meetup groups, uh, Airbnb experiences. I have the Marriott Corporation and the Mayflower Hotel backing me. So it's people who are uh, very interested in history. It tends to be people... Uh, uh, a lot of retired people who uh, want to do things for fun that they didn't get a chance to do during their working career, interest in politics and whatnot. Also, it's a it's a fun outdoors activity. Almost all my tours are outdoors. And so we take them around these historic locales, uh, the most historic locales in D.C., Lafayette Square, the Capitol Building in Georgetown and such. So if I wanted to go on tour, how long would the tour be and what would it cost me? Tours cost uh, 20 bucks. Per person, uh, you can do a group tour if you like, special group tours, and they take about two hours. I'm, I'm, it's said that I'm the Bruce Springsteen of tour guides. My tours have been known to go on for three or four hours, but uh, I, I found that people usually tire after about ninety minutes. So we try to keep it at uh, at two hours. So when you're down and taking people on a tour of Lafayette Square, what's the thing that they most seem to like that you're telling them? Uh, my guests seem to like violent incidents. Uh, for example, maybe the worst scoundrel in Lafayette Square history, a fellow named Congressman Dan Sickles, who uh, shot to death the uh, Attorney General of D.C., 
a fellow named Philip Barton Key, the son of Francis Scott Key, shot him to death in Lafayette Square after Key had an affair with his wife. Uh, Sickles then went on. Uh, his his re- political reputation was damaged by this, as you can imagine. How does he get his reputation back? As a wealthy man, a couple of years later, he raises uh, troops for the Union Army, and he winds up in southern Pennsylvania in early July 1863 at the Battle of Gettysburg and winds up with the Medal of Honor as well as losing a leg at the battle uh, before going on to some other scandals late in his life. So uh, they like stories like that where you have uh, noted characters who were involved in uh, scandalous things. Because we've seen so much of Lafayette Square in the last couple of years because of demonstrations and Black Lives Matter Plaza recently the statue of Andrew Jackson there in Lafayette Square had expect us written on the side of it. What do people want to know about that Andrew Jackson statue? Well, the uh, the story that I like to tell, since these are often scandal tours, tours of intrigue or, or murder, uh, I tell about the, the biggest sex scandal in D.C. history when I bring people to the Jackson, Jackson statue. Uh, it has to do with a uh, – it was a tavern keeper, a, a daughter of a tavern keeper in Georgetown. And uh, she uh, had an affair with Jackson's secretary of war, John Eaton. Her name was Peggy, Pretty Peggy. And it caused such a uh, stink that uh, Jackson's cabinet basically shut down over the so-called petticoat affair. And uh, he, had to, he, he had to dismiss his entire cabinet on the advice of uh, Martin Van Buren, replaced them with his own men. He rolled to re-election. Uh, but it was uh, it, it really alienated his vice president, a fellow named John C. Calhoun, who, with his tail between his legs, went back to South Carolina, got involved in the movement for secession and nullification. So it could be said that Pretty Peggy was involved in the biggest sex scandal in Washington history in terms of cabinet members uh, dismissed, but she also helped bring on the Civil War. So people are fascinated by, by stories like that. I'm going to ask you what might be uh, sound like it's an uh, anti question. Isn't uh, it's not at all? But I, you have a master's degree in uh, the arts, and you graduated from George Washington University, and you have all the background that we talked about earlier, uh, including working for a lot of different companies. How can somebody like you end up giving tours and make enough money that uh, it's a living? It's tough unless you're a uh, David McCullough, it's tough to make a, a living as a historian. There's a lot of uh, the company named Amazon, which can make things tough uh, to because uh, there's a lot of reselling of books uh, where you don't get royalties. So uh, in my case, I've, I pursued different different careers at once. Really, I work with uh, with IT and with uh, I do uh, maybe some speech writing on the side and uh, give tours and get some royalties from books. Uh, so it's a it's a, a collection of things, but it's it's tough for a writer unless you got the big name or or hit that really great idea that finally breaks through. You were talking about Andrew Jackson, and in your new book, The Lost History of the Capitol, you have a chapter about Andrew Jackson getting shot at the Capitol. Can you give us some background on that? Well, this was the uh, the, the book is about uh, crime and assassination attempts and, and duels. And so I had to tell the story of the first attempted assassination of a president. It took place in 1835, a very wild year. And Jackson was attending a a funeral uh, at the Capitol, at the House, was coming down the eastern steps of the Capitol, the Capitol steps, when a crazy man, David Lawrence, probably he was a painter. He may have been driven crazy by the mercury and the lead and the paints of the time. He approached Jackson with two loaded pistols, fired one. The first one misfired. Old Hickory took his hickory cane and began attacking his would-be assassin, who pulled out a second pistol. The second pistol misfired. Uh, the Smithsonian got a hold of both pistols. A hundred years later, in 1935, they had ballistics experts clean and fire both pistols, which went off perfectly. The Smithsonian estimated the odds of both pistols misfiring at the same time at 1 in 125,000. So Jackson's followers were convinced that the hand of Providence had saved him. That may be. It was also a wet day, a damp day, and perhaps the gunpowder was uh, was moist. Uh, the first attempt at a pres- presidential assassination really should have been the first presidential murder, but uh, it was not. 
I'm not going to give the story away until you tell it, but there's a congressman named William Stanberry uh, who got involved with somebody of, of some note. Can you tell us that one? Well, it was in that same wild year of 1835. Uh, that would be a good book, by the way, all the incidents in that year. And it happened at the, outside the Capitol building, uh, William Stanberry. And it was it involved the uh, several of the big issues of the time. One was the Indian removal, the, the tragic removal of the Cherokees and others beyond the Mississippi. It also involved the Bank of the United States, which was a huge issue. Uh, Andrew Jackson closed down that early Federal Reserve. Uh, he made enemies with a congressman from Ohio named Stanberry, uh, who uh, slandered or spoke badly about a former senator and governor of Tennessee, who took umbrage and challenged Stanberry to a duel. Stanberry refused, and the former governor thought that he was not only a slanderer, but a coward. Stanberry knew the, que- the fellow in question was uh, someone to be feared, and he walked around the Capitol grounds armed. But still, one night he ran into the fellow who took his own hickory cane, knocked Congressman Stanberry to the ground, and gave him a real beating, even part of his legs, and gave him a shot to uh, the the male section of his anatomy. Let us us put it that way. It turned out that the assaulter of Representative Stanberry was none other than Sam Houston, formerly of Tennessee, and on his way with his political reputation damaged on his way south by southwest to texas where he became of course the president of the republic of texas one of the wildest events ever to occur in or around the capital did sam houston pay any price for that he went before congress defended himself he had friends in very high places notably president jackson who bought him a new suit of clothes for his congressional trial uh he knew uh he also had friends such as Francis Scott Key, the district attorney of Washington, D.C. at the time, who helped him out, uh, and a future president, uh, a speaker of the House named Polk, James Knox Polk, uh, also helped out uh, Houston. Basically, he got a slap on the wrist, a fine, uh, and President Jackson refused to collect the fine. Still, he had made a lot of enemies in Congress, and uh, he made his greater renown in Texas. As you know, and you say in the book, if you go up right outside Arlington House, up on top of the hill at Arlington Cemetery, there's a gravesite of a man named Lafont who you say fell from grace over the years after he designed the city. Tell us the background on that. Well, I found that uh, things have been uh, troubled from the start with the Capitol building. And it began with the very designer of Washington, D.C., the great Pierre Lafont, very much admired today. He has that uh, grave near the Kennedy Graves at the top of Arlington National Cemetery, looks down upon the city he created. But things didn't didn't turn out well for him at the start. Uh, when he was laying, da- when, when his workmen were laying down New Jersey Avenue, just south of the Capitol building, this is, this is in the 1790s, even before the, the Capitol building itself was constructed. LaFont's men found a a mansion, a beautiful townhouse, was blocking the way of their road work. So instead of asking the owner, they disassembled the house. They took it apart to its foundations. It turned out the owner was a member of the Carroll family, the most politically powerful family in Maryland, as in Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. When word got back to President Washington, uh, about this slur on his new capital city, he was very angry, and he sent an angry letter to LaFont, who continued to disobey the city commissioners that were really in charge of constructing the city. That included in-laws of George Washington. So President Washington asked his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, to dismiss LaFont, and he, he was fired. He later got work with Alexander Hamilton uh, in a model city in New Jersey, uh, left that job, uh, later worked on the federal fortresses, forts, but uh, he re- he died in poverty in suburban Maryland. And it wasn't until a century later that he was really rediscovered by the French. The French ambassador had him put in state at the Capitol building, and then his remains were transferred to his honored spot today atop Arlington National Cemetery. When you're giving tours of uh, Lafayette Square outside the White House and also around the Capitol, what's the question that you're always asked by somebody on the tour 
uh, has to do a bit with the uh, Congressman Sickles. People like to know who's the worst villain, perhaps, who's the worst person to uh, behave around here. And there are many, many contenders at the Capitol building, I found. Uh, it's, it's a forgotten fellow. He's a professor at Harvard. His name was Eric Munter. And in July of 1915, uh, July 4th weekend, he entered an almost unguarded Senate. There was only one security guard there. Boy, have things have changed. And uh, after leaving the Senate, he went back to Union Station, the train station a mile away, looked back at night, and he saw a bright flash from the bomb he had put in the Senate. Uh, he then uh, he destroyed the telegraph office there, didn't hurt anyone. He then took a train to New York City, planted a bomb on a munitions ship, 1915, World War One, a munitions ship destined for France. He then went to the estate on Long Island of J.P. Morgan Jr., and he shot J.P. Morgan, wounded him, didn't kill him. Uh, he was arrested, and then his prior life came out. He had been a professor at Harvard University. His pregnant wife had gotten sick, and he insisted on caring for his wife personally. And just after delivering their baby, she died. An autopsy found she had been poisoned by soup that he had fed her during her illness. He escaped to the West, escaped to Mexico, assumed a different identity, and years later came back as the mad bomber of the Senate, Professor Eric Munter. Uh, in my mind, perhaps the worst villain in Capitol history. People love these stories of these unknown figures who sadly did terrible things in these famous locales. You write about the March 2nd, 1971 bombing of the Senate side of the Capitol. It just so happens I was there. Not when the bomb went off, but the next morning it was in that room. What's wow. the story about that? Well, it's interesting in that the there there was, have been three bombings of the Capitol. I just mentioned one, Eric Munter, 1915. The bombings in 1971 and 1983 were very much related or by two groups that were related to each other. The 1971 one had to do with the weather underground. Uh, they started out very uh, idealistically, the members of the Weather Underground uh, in the civil rights movement of the early 1960s. They became very uh, intent against the Vietnam War, more radical, more violent. They planted bombs in New York City, uh, State Department, Washington Navy Yard, and in the U.S. Senate. Uh, although they tried to send a, a message, in, they planted the bombs usually at night, in buildings that were deserted so as not to kill anybody, but to send a anti-war, anti-American message out. Incredibly, a number of the women involved with the Weather Underground, a decade later, formed something called the May 19th Group. May 19th is the birthday of Ho Chi Minh and Che Guevara. They were a, a radical and violent anti-American group, and they planted the, the bomb in the Senate in 1983, again, late at night, after a phone call to the Washington Post and to the Capitol switchboard, get everybody out of the building. It's about to blow. So the, both both groups are very much related. And they were related to some of the uh, more violent people in uh, American history the last 50 years, like a fellow named uh, No Hands Morales, who worked with the weather underground in New York City. He got his nickname from, uh, uh, from working on bombs, and one time he uh, – used a timer that apparently used a minute hand instead of an hour hand. It went up prematurely and blew off his hands. As the police and firemen in New York came to uh, put out the fire in his building and rescue his life, he turned on the gas stove of his building, hoping that it would ignite and kill all the, the people trying to help him out. Uh, and he got involved with the weather underground and helped inspire some of the people who tried to blow up the Capitol. Barack Obama had a friend named Bill Ayers. And Bill Ayers' wife, what role did they play in that 71 bombing? Yeah, Bill Ayers and, uh, and yes, and, and his wife, uh, they had a, a famous or infamous uh, fundraising meeting with, with uh, Obama when he was starting his Senate campaign. They were part of the Weather Underground that uh, were involved in a series of bombings and also of uh, robberies, of robberies that took place in the Washington area and New York, a famous Brinks robbery where um, the Brinks armored car was pulled over with the women involved who later got involved with the, uh, the female terrorist group that bombed the Senate in 1983. They pulled over a, a Brinks armored car uh, and uh, outside of New York, 
and shot and killed several of the security guards. So some of the women involved with the Weather Underground at that time were later part of the May 19th group in the 1980s. You quote Bill Ayers as saying about the Pentagon bomb that it was an itsy-bitsy bomb. Uh, Did he ever pay a price for uh, being involved in all this? There was a a huge uh, investigation against both the Weather Underground and the May 19th, and almost all were rounded up eventually. There's a couple of women who were still on the lam, but almost everyone else was rounded up uh, and served some kind of jail time, uh, perhaps pardoned in recent years. Uh, but they they did pay a price, and then they varied on their uh, they varied in what they think about what they did. Some thought some apologized, some uh, came back to normal society, if you will. Where uh, others were thought they had done the right thing and are uh, haven't uh, repented at all. How do you research all this? I research through various means. There's some great resources, local resources in D.C. Of course, famously the National Archive. You have the National Archives. Uh, you have the Library of Congress. Uh, I love the. I plow through many books on the subject, uh, articles. Researchers nowadays have a lot of online material. Uh, I remember my first book, I went over to the Library of Congress and I would spend many weeks with microfiche. Thank goodness that so much is online nowadays. Uh, I've also, I also draw upon my tours a lot. I have an unusual way of constructing tours and doing research for them. I tend to walk around an area and if something catches my fancy, a historical plaque, a, a building, some personality that I know about, that is linked to the area, I'll go back and do the research on that. And then I'll start stringing stories together that I, I think might, that people might find of interest and uh, pull together a whole tour and then write a chapter on each incident in the tour and hopefully get a book about it. You sent me on a wild goose chase because um, it's in your book. Uh, and when I read it, I said, I've got to find that. It's the Anne Frank tree on the lawn of the Capitol, which is not that easy to find, but it does have a plaque there. Why did you put that in your book? There's three commemorative trees on the uh, Capitol grounds, which all tell wonderful stories. Uh, and I was I was at the part of the book where I was telling World War II stories, like the, the Nazi saboteurs that were rounded up by J. Edgar Hoover in 1942. And I had told a story already about the Sullivan brothers, the real-life inspiration for Saving Private Ryan. Uh, this uh, tragic family of five brothers who died on board a U.S. Navy ship in 1942. Uh, And a decade later, some congressmen came out with the mother of the five slain Navy men, and they planted five crabapple trees on the the east side of the Capitol. Uh, Crabapples have a sour taste. Uh, They're supposed to evoke the terrible feeling that Mrs. Sullivan had when she learned the horrible news that all five of her sons had died. I found that on the opposite side of the Capitol, on the west side, was this very small tree, which you could go on a wild goose chase for because it's very hard to see. It's a small tree. You, most people just brush right by it, a chestnut tree. It turns out it's a sapling from the tree that Anne Frank herself looked upon while she was in self-imposed exile with her whole family in that attic in Amsterdam, Holland, uh, during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And each spring, she would look, look out her attic window. She couldn't leave the house. And she'd see, see, she'd see that tree in bloom, and the flowers represented to her, of course, freedom and uh, the wonder of spring that was denied her and millions of others in Europe at that time. Uh, the, the Congress and dozens of other places in the world have got a hold of the sapling of that tree, and they planted it there on the lawn in Anne Frank's honor. And credit goes to Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz on that plaque. Um, what, do you remember what the third tree was, the third uh, honor? Right up the slope from the Anne Frank tree is an oak tree that was planted uh, on just about September 11th, 2011, the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And uh, you know, that was a wild day, September 11th, in the Capitol. Uh, I found out that uh, I, read a, I read a book about this where the uh, – the head of Pakistani intelligence was meeting with American congressmen in the Capitol on 9-11, and the fellow was secretly urging the funding of Mohammed Atta, one of the hijackers on 9-11, uh, as the fourth plane, the fourth hijacked plane was over 
Shanksville, Pennsylvania, probably on the way to the Capitol, not the White House. Uh, the Capitol building was filled with thousands of congressmen, staffers, administrators, security guards. Uh, the the real heroes of that day for the Capitol building were the passengers who stormed the cockpit, apparently almost taking it over and forcing the hijackers hijackers to steer the plane into the ground over in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so the the tree there commemorates the passengers who uh, perhaps saved the Capitol building, hundreds or even thousands of people within it. Washington's first hanging at the foot <laughs> of the Capitol. What's that about? I was amazed to find out this story. The Capitol uh, really only got started in 1800 when the House of Representatives met for the first time. They actually met in the Senate wing because the House wasn't built yet. Things were behind schedule. And uh, the new city of Washington also didn't have a a courthouse. The the courthouse and the courtroom was actually in the Capitol building. And its first murder murder trial took place there with a very unfortunate, evil person named James McGurk. He was an Irish immigrant uh, who took the drink and liquor ruined him and his family. Uh, He had a wife, a pregnant wife, who he took the beating, uh, this drunken man, uh, beat her to death and their unborn children. So he's the first man arraigned and and tried for murder in the new city of Washington. Uh, He was found guilty, of course, although he had a very skillful lawyer, uh, a fellow named Augustus Woodward, People from Michigan, from Detroit, might know the name Woodward Street in Detroit. He actually he was the Pierre Lafont of Detroit. He laid the city out later on. But in 1802, he was the lawyer for Mr. McGurk, this murderer. And he had friends in high places. The president was Thomas Jefferson, who uh, was very much intent on getting rid of uh, tortures and cruel and unusual punishments. McGurk and Woodward prayed that Jefferson might commute the sentence. That was politically impossible, even if Jefferson wanted to, probably not. And so uh, he was sent to the gallows. A gallows was constructed on today's west lawn of the of the Capitol building. Uh, he uh, was disconsolate. He said he was a ruined man. And as the rope was put around his neck, he broke away from his handlers and he rushed. He jumped off the gallows to hang himself, if you will. But the rope didn't work. It didn't snap his neck, and he was strangling, hanging off the gallows until he was pulled in, choking. They uh, couldn't use the same rope again. A second rope was acquired. Again, the noose was put around his neck, and for the second time, he broke away from his handlers, and James McGurk leapt into space. This time, his neck broke, and uh, thus died the first person convicted of murder in D.C. on the grounds of the Capitol. And you say that was near what is now the James Garfield statue, which is next to the Grant statue, which is next to the Peace Monument. And you write about all these things. Um, you also write about the assassination of James Garfield. What? And that story has been told many times. But what do you find about the assassination that was the most interesting? One was that uh, one thing that was very interesting was the anger of the American public at the time, and also the uh, the good deeds that they did. When Garfield was being carried from the train station on today's National Mall by carriage to the White House, a big crowd of people gathered around his carriage, and the, the Washington then didn't really have paved roads. The, the streets were very broken, and the president was very injured, and so he was in agony in his carriage. And so what the people did, whenever they saw a pothole, in front of the presidential carriage, they would lift up the wheels of the carriage <laughs> so the president wouldn't be discomforted by the banging of the muddy streets. Uh, that, it's hard to imagine that sort of thing today. When Garfield was taken to his final place at the end of his life, he wanted to, to see the seashore off of New Jersey. special train was constructed for him to take him there. When he got to this uh, mansion house that a friend had lent him to spend his final hours, the, the train engine wasn't powerful enough to bring him up up to the house. And so the people of the town put their shoulders to the train and pushed the train to the top of the hill. 
allowing the president to enter the seaside house uh, for his final day. It's hard to imagine those sort of things happening today. Another thing that amazed me, the anger of the American public uh, when Garfield was shot at the train station, uh, the assassin, Charles Gateau, was nearly lynched. And he was nearly lynched, ironically, by African-American workers uh, who were furious because Garfield had run on a, among other things, had run on a, a civil rights plaque, plank when he was uh, a presidential candidate. Uh, he was hustled out of the station by a cop, uh, taken to the Washington City Jail, which still exists near Congressional Cemetery, uh, kind of fittingly. And he was almost killed in his jail cell by an irate guard who took a shot at Charles Guiteau. Just missed him. The bullet went smashing into his his uh, cell wall. Uh, he was all a second attempt assassination attempt was made on the assassin by an irate farmer who uh, rushed at him while he was being ferried in his carriage from his uh, courtroom back to the Washington City Jail. So there's always things, to, new things to find out about about any incredible incident like that. Check me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Grant statue, I think this in, in your book, was uh, unveiled in 1922, the same time that the Lincoln Memorial was, gets far less attention than the Lincoln Memorial. But you say it's quite a statue and that the uh, fellow that was responsible for it uh, has, has a self-portrait in, this, in the uh, statue. Explain that. There's an ama- amazing story behind the Grant statue. Uh, in fact, uh, the sculptor, Henry Schrady, his father was a Dr. Schrady who performed the autopsy on the slain president, uh, James Garfield, uh, and found out that uh, all of Garfield's doctors were wrong, that the bullet that had entered the, uh, his lower, the lower right side of his back had wound up in his left side of his back. And the doctors had spent months with unsterilized hands, unsterilized uh, instruments, digging into Garfield's body, trying to find the bullet in the wrong place. Uh, that's a whole other story. Henry Schrady, the son of the, of the, the doctor to Garfield, uh, he had a tragic life. Uh, he was probably not the best person to pick for the wonderful set of statues he, he sculpted for U.S. Grant, but he, uh, he gave it his all. He actually gave it his life. He worked on it for over 20 years, uh, went over budget, behind schedule, had a nervous breakdown, a uh, physical breakdown, and he died, sadly, before the statue, just before the statue was unveiled in 1922. But he, he left a lasting impression on his, uh, on his sculpture of a, a group of Union cavalrymen uh, either charging or retreating into or from battle. It's hard to tell. It's a very grim statue. And at the front of it is an unhorsed Union cavalryman. He's fallen off his horse, and the horse is trampling him, trampling him to death. And his face is looking up in, in agony, realizing his life is coming to an end. Incredibly, the, the face of that Union cavalryman is Henry Schrady. It's a self-portrait that he put into his own sculpture. Very fitting because he really gave his own life to come up with this magnificent work. Someone listening to this says, I want to go, and I want uh, Mr. Moser to um... – Take me on a tour. How does it work? Well, it's very easy. I have several meetup groups, uh, such as the Lafayette Square Tours of Scandal, assassina- Assassination and Intrigue, and they can sign up through that, or they can uh, go on Airbnb Experiences and uh, or Eventbrite, find me there, and just uh, register online or contact me. They can uh, They can have large groups, small groups, and I'll even create a tour for you. I give 80 different tours throughout the Mid-Atlantic region. But if you have uh, one special to your heart, special to your group, I'll I'll make it up for you. Give me an example of uh, something we haven't talked about that's a tour that you have out of the 80. uh, A a very popular tour that is not in Washington, D.C. It's actually in a a former former part of Washington, D.C. It's Old Town Alexandria. And uh, it's eight miles down the Potomac. It's the hometown of George Washington, uh, Robert E. Lee, of uh, Admiral Halsey lived there during the Second World War. It has a torpedo factory for the two world wars. And I'm actually uh, trying to craft a novel uh, based on the the history, both past and contemporary history, of Old Town Alexandria, 
Uh, it has a wonderful uh, set of ghost stories. This is Halloween time. It's probably most famous for uh, something called the Female Stranger, a woman who appeared at the at Gatsby's Tavern, which held the first six presidential inauguration balls before Washington D.C. was built, before it had any kind of hotels to help to hold such inauguration uh, festivities. And in 1813. Was it 1813 or 1816? A mysterious female stranger and her male accomplice appeared. She was very ill, and she died at Gatsby's Tavern and was buried at uh, a Protestant cemetery nearby. And there's all kinds of speculation ever since. Who was this mysterious woman who never revealed her identity? Some people even think that she was the daughter of Aaron Burr, Theodosia Burr, who died uh, around that same time and not that probably not that far away from a shipwreck in the uh, the Chesapeake Bay. Let me ask you about this special tour. Let's say somebody wants a special tour by themselves or with, you know, their family. What kind of money does that cost them? It's usually about $20 a person to tour uh, for, for two hours with a historian and tour guide. And uh, the group tour might go uh, group tour roughly. 20 times 20 for a group of 20, $400 with a minimum. You can uh, you just take a couple of people. It's a special birthday trick, uh, treat, Christmas gift, uh, minimum of 350 or 400 or so. What's the largest group you ever have in a tour? Well, sometimes I get uh, groups backing me, uh, like uh, there's a Washington Meetup and Culture group uh, that's been um, doing online tours of mine where, I, where I'll speak uh, in a live stream. And if uh, and then I'll, I'll give a, a physical tour as a follow up to that. And uh, with groups like that, I might get as many as 50 or 60 people. But that gets unwieldy. Uh, I have to start shouting and uh, people have to strain to hear me. Uh, I don't use a artificial apparatus to amplify my voice. Don't really want to. I, I try to think of these things as uh, open air seminars of college seminars where you take your students outdoors to see the actual places where these famous and for fascinating things happened. And so I try to keep it to 20, 25, or 30 people tops. We talked about the Garfield statue, the Grant statue, both on the west side of the Capitol down at the bottom. And then the next one is the Peace Memorial. And I want to ask you about D.C. Stevenson and the largest demonstration in D.C. history, supposedly, as you say in the book. Uh, who was he, and what's uh, what's that Peace Memorial all about? Well, the Peace Memorial has been the starting place for uh, a lot of famous marches in D.C. history. Uh, one of them was uh, took place in March of 1913, just a day or two before the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson as president. Uh, had, a, had a few thousand marchers, uh, but hundreds of that, hundred thousand people lined the streets of Pennsylvania Avenue to see the Women's Suffragette March of 1913. Twelve years later, 1925, with the person you mentioned uh, as one of the leaders, took place probably the largest march of the time. Uh, tens of thousands of marchers and over 100,000 spectators uh, watching the march from the Peace Memorial down to the White House and onto the National Mall. And uh, that was, well, <laughs> if you look at the photographs from 1925, it's really astonishing because you see thousands of men marching with uh, white uniforms and hoods slung on their shoulders, the Ku Klux Klan. It was the Ku Klux Klan March of 1925 when the Klan had reached its greatest popularity after re trying to recast itself as sort of a, a super patriot group uh, and trying to distance itself from the violent group that had committed atrocities after the Civil War. Uh, and so that was the largest protest march or rally, if you will, in D.C. history up until that time, 1925. Who is the man in the green hat? Well, sometimes people ask me, uh, who's the greatest hypocrite in the history of the Capitol? Or <laughs> how, how has Congress been at its most hypocritical? And I think it's pretty clear. In, the, in 1925, the same year as the Klan march, uh, police stopped a man entering the, house, the Cannon House office building on the east side of the Capitol. He was carrying very heavy luggage into the building, 
and there was something strange about his baggage. It was leaking. And the police came over and they smelled his they smelled his luggage. It was reeking of alcohol. Alcohol that he had brought in all the way from New York uh, during Prohibition, the Prohibition that Congress had passed in the early 1920s. And several congressmen asked the man in the green hat, George Cassidy, of good Irish descent, to be the bootlegger to Congress, to not only lug illicit liquor into the House, but to set up a still, (laughs) set up a distillery in the basement of the House, uh, which he used to sell to uh, the House members, after the after his uh, after his story leaked, if you will, uh, he was arrested, slapped on the wrist. But George Cassidy, the man in the green hat, he wore a, a green fedora. He landed on his feet, and he simply moved his business to the other side of the Capitol, to the U.S. Senate, and he enjoyed that more because the Senate offices were much bigger, and gave him more spaces to hide his illicit brew. Do you ever get a question uh, when you're taking a tour or a challenge from someone that says, you don't know what you're talking about? Sometimes at the start of a tour, people are skeptical or they'll make uh, wiseacre comments. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, after after a, a stop or two on the tour, and I tend to be rather verbose and give a great deal of detail, I think people realize that uh, I can learn a lot on this tour. And uh, this fellow doesn't know what he's talking about. And uh, so that usually stops after a couple of minutes. When you uh, I do get people, I have to say, I do get people who do nail me on some details here, here and there. And I'm always happy to uh, take questions or corrections, go back and do further research. One of the things I want to ask you about the book itself, you have no footnotes, but you have 19 pages of bibliography. What was your thought in not having book, uh, having the footnotes? purely a, a means of writing. If I, uh, if I stop and make a note at each sentence, each paragraph, instead of taking me a year and a half, it might take me 15 years. Uh, so I, I check things very carefully. Our editor at Roman and Littlefield read the book very closely, uh, but I didn't footnote it like many history books, paragraph by paragraph. But I did put the very large uh, bibliography in the back. And I remember periodically you would just quote directly from the author. Uh, one I remember is Candace Millard when you're talking about the Garfield assassination. Do you ever worry about uh, – I mean, this is not an accusation, but how much right. do you worry about plagiarism because you read so many books and all that stuff that somebody will see you taking their material? Uh, I try to give credit to all the great historians as much as I can, like that excellent book on Garfield. Uh, the book I used about the, the 9/11 incidents, uh, and uh, and check and fact check and double check as much as I can. So it's not that much of a concern. I, fortunately, I'm blessed with an uh, unusually good memory, a very good memory, and hopefully that allows me to sidestep some of those concerns. And where did you grow up, and what were your parents like? I grew up in uh, the Bronx, New York, and. Uh, my parents were uh, book lovers. Uh, we have a funny story we like to tell. When, when people would come over to our house, uh, they'd sit down, and instead of conversing like normal people do, they would find uh, my parents, uh, myself and my sisters, we'd be sitting around reading newspapers, reading books, because we thought that was the enjoyable thing to do. And when our guests got impatient, we merely handed them a book or a newspaper to <laughs> join the fun. <laughs> Did anybody ever get up and walk out? <laughs> I think they quickly realized uh, what we were really into in the house. When did you first think about doing tours and why? Well, I've always liked history uh, and politics. It really came about in Lafayette Square uh, oh, 20 years ago or so. I was walking around and saying, oh, this is the place where Dan Sickles killed the son of uh, Francis Scott Key. Oh, this is the place where uh, the man tried to assassinate Lincoln's secretary of state the night that Lincoln was killed. Oh, this is the place. And I thought, well, this would make a great article. And so I wrote an article, and I don't think it even got published, but I sort of put it aside and said, I think this I can make something of this sometime. And uh, eventually I, I came up with a flagship tour, the Lafayette Square Tours of Scandal, Assassination, and Intrigue, and went from there. That turned into a book, and that turned into the Capitol Hill uh, tours and books, etc. Uh, my My dream actually was to 
have a set of four books of the most historic locales in the nation's capital region, namely Lafayette Square, Capitol Building, Georgetown, and Old Town Alexandria. I'm working on the third now, Old Town, and maybe Georgetown will come as well. Back to the Capitol in 1954, Puerto Ricans, five members of Congress hit by bullets. Explain that one. Well, it's a wonderful story, a uh, terrible story. Uh, there were a, a group of people approached the west steps of the Capitol, not far from where Eric Munter, on the other side of the Capitol from where Eric, Eric Munter had planted his bomb in 1915. And a, a small group of men were led by a woman, and the men hesitated and said in their native tongue, perhaps we should do this another day. We're kind of late today. They were getting cold feet. And the beautiful woman with them, a former beauty pageant queen named, uh, named Lolita, Lolita Lebrun, she turned to the men and, and said, Yo soy solo, yo soy solo, I am a, so alone, I am abandoned by these cowards. The men were cowed and decided to follow her. And they did into a House of Representatives that had very little security in 1954. Uh, they, they were asked if they had cameras. They did not. They were not checked for guns, and they were sent up to the women's gallery, as the visitors' gallery was known, on the second floor. They uh, unfurled a, a flag from their home island, recited the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, and then took out pistols and started firing into the well of the House of Representatives. Uh, their aim, to uh, send a scare into Congress and have it grant independence to the, their home island of Puerto Rico. Uh, didn't work. Didn't work out that well. Uh, it was a almost comic opera. The Speaker of the House, of Mr. Martin, at the time, uh, actually gaveled the House session to a close as bullets were flying around him before then diving behind a, a marble pillar for protection. Uh, and then the people, uh, the actual, the average people, rose to the occasion. Interns, uh, visitors in the ladies' gallery, uh, and a uh, a World War II veteran. Con- uh, congressman, they arrested Lolita and her henchmen. Uh, It was the most violent incident in the history of the Capitol building in terms of congressmen who were wounded. Four or five were wounded, one seriously. Fortunately, none died. Whatever happened to Lolita? They got very long prison sentences. Lolita's was somewhat, uh, her sentence was somewhat less, uh, not so much that she was a woman, but she aimed her gun at the ceiling not at the House floor. Uh, they were sent off to uh, Leavenworth and other prisons. And then an amazing thing happened. Um, the, the, and there was a similar incident four years before outside the, the White House with uh, Puerto Rican uh, ultranationalists trying to assassinate Harry Truman. Uh, in the 1970s, a number of them were pardoned by President Jimmy Carter. And there was speculation for some time that this was some kind of political move that was Carter trying to, to gain Latin, Latin support somehow. seemed odd. Pardoning would-be killers. It turned out that there was a secret deal between the Carter administration and Fidel Castro, who had arrested a number of American CIA agents on his island. And in return for releasing them, America released these uh, the shooters up of the Capitol and would-be assassins of the president, uh, as part of a secret deal, because Castro was uh, Castro in his way was actually sympathetic towards people engaged in such sordid activities. I found it very interesting as someone who's lived in Washington for a long time that there is a place called Brutalist Boulevard. <laughs> I, uh, I was very surprised. Sometimes in, I go a, a, a few blocks away from the Capitol building to tell the stories. And I was very surprised to find the story of LaFont Plaza, which is a collection of mostly government buildings and hotels in, uh, on the uh, south side of the National Mall, which often ranks three or four of its buildings, such as the uh, HHS building, the uh, Department of Energy, Department of Education. They often rank among the 10 most ugly buildings on the planet. Uh, they, they even have coined a term called brutalist architecture to describe these concrete monstrosities. How did they come about? Well, they came about through 
urban, what was called urban renewal, but it was really urban devastation. Uh, back in the 1930s and 40s, there was a, a, uh, a hard scrabble, but rather vibrant neighborhood on the south side of the National Mall. And it gave us some famous people, uh, famous musicians. Al Josen, for example, uh, maybe the greatest male singer before Frank Sinatra. It also gave us Marvin Gaye, the great soul singer. Uh, but it was kind of a poor neighborhood, didn't have much influence with people in high places. And it became a target, among other things, of the interstate highway program. And uh, the interstate through Washington ran right through this old neighborhood, devastating it. And uh, some greed got involved. Uh, some of the federal government agencies uh, cast their eyes on the real estate there, wanted, pro- wanted offices uh, close to the Capitol building in the White House. And uh, instead of this uh, hard scrabble but vibrant neighborhood, you wound up with all these ugly, ugly government buildings and hotels. So ugly, they came up with a term for it called brutalism, brutalist architecture. Do you have any idea who invented that term? Uh, La Caborcier, the crow, uh, uh, was a French architect the early 20th century who, along with uh, people inspired by uh, a school of architecture in Berlin, uh, came up with what the, most of what we, we think of as the international style of, of glass and uh, skyscrapers in the downtowns of the world, sometimes very beautiful, uh, with one of their acolytes named I.M. Pei who uh, constructed uh, beautiful skyscrapers in, in Boston, Massachusetts, as well as the, uh, the East Gallery of the National Gallery of Art, right at the foot of the Capitol building. But they also came up with some real monstrosities and were the inspiration as well behind a lot of the public housing throughout the United States, uh, where things happened very much like happened that, that gave us LaFont uh, Plaza, where... Uh, Older, less influential ethnic neighborhoods were basically bulldozed uh, and replaced either with uh, government buildings uh, or with, uh, gov- uh, with gov- uh, replaced with government buildings or with public housing. So it was a real uh, – this, this was the birth of, uh, uh, of a reform movement by the 1960s and 1970s to take a more natural approach to the uh, regeneration of our inner cities. As you well know, you don't have to look at the education building any longer, but you do have to look at a scrim put up in front of in front of the Eisenhower Memorial, a hundred and fifty million dollar project. What do you think of it? I have uh, the same opinion about the new Eisenhower Memorial uh, as I do about the new uh, John Pershing World War II Memorial. World War, you mean side. World War One? You mean uh, the war- yeah, Excuse Pershing, me, Pershing, yeah. The World War One Memorial uh, next to the Treasury Building and the Willett Hotel on the other side of the mall, uh, I find them underwhelming. That they don't really tell the story, the incredible life and career of Dwight Eisenhower, or of John Pershing. On the other, uh, they have very little explanation, explanatory text, and it's sort of a both both places. In my mind, in both places, in my mind, are rather sterile and, and empty, and uh, it's very hard to put together a, a public monument nowadays in Washington, D.C., that really stirs the soul. Uh, I think part because so many people have become involved in it. Unlike a Henry Schrady, who created his masterpiece of the U.S. Grant Memorial, because he had basic control over it uh, despite his flaws, now you have committees uh, that put together these memorials over a long period of time, and the results aren't as good. Back to violence. (laughs) <laughs> which you write a lot about. The names, uh, 28-year-old James Watson Webb versus Duff Green, 38, Silly and Graves. Who are all those people, and how much violence was involved? Well, it involves the uh, the only killing of a congressman by another congressman, and it was a very silly event, pardon the pun, involving Jonathan Silly of Maine and a congressman, William Graves of Virginia, who... Uh, didn't dislike each other. They hardly knew each other. But they got involved with, well, with the, uh, the Bank of the United States that uh, Andrew, Andrew Jackson had closed down. And uh, Jonathan Silly from Maine, who was an opponent of the bank, made a speech in Congress attacking the journalist Webb uh, for lining his pockets from, uh, from the bank. 
it was a, a false charge, and uh, Webb took offense at this, and he challenged John, Jonathan Silly, Congressman Jonathan Silly, to a duel. But Silly thought it was beneath him to accept a duel from a mere journalist. So <laughs> Webb, the journalist, got a colleague of his in Congress, Congressman Graves, to present an angry letter to Congressman Silly. Silly refused to accept the letter. He's not going to accept any letter from a journalist. Incredibly, Congressman Graves then interpreted this as a slur on him for not accepting the letter. And Congressman Graves challenged Congress Jonathan Silly to a duel, 1838. Um, dueling was then illegal in Washington, D.C., but it was legal in Prince George's County in Maryland. And so they went out to the dueling grounds in Bladensburg, Maryland. And as the challenged party, Jonathan Silly, Congressman Silly, got to pick the weapons and the terms of the duel. And he came. He and his seconds, his colleagues, came up with a brilliant plan. Instead of using dueling pistols, like Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Byrd did, for example, let's use rifles. <laughs> now, to a modern audience, that, seems, that sounds crazy. Rifles are far more destructive. Not in 1838. Rifles weren't really rifled or grooved. They were very inaccurate, and Silly knew this. And he also had the two co – he had him and Congressman Graves stand at almost 100 paces apart, a great distance. So he was fairly certain no one would be hurt in the duel. And for the first two rounds of the duel, no one was hurt. Both men fired at each other. Congressman Graves actually misfired. No one was hurt. Their seconds, their colleagues came together to try to call, call the duel off. Congressman Graves insisted on a third round. Three times is a charm, or sometimes three times is a harm. And on his third shot, Graves hit Silly in his upper thigh near his groin, and he bled to death within seconds. The only congressman killed by another congressman in congressional history. The good news, Congress put an end to it. It forbade congressmen from even discussing duels with each other, much less engaging in them. There's so much in the book that we haven't had time to talk about, um, but we know when. What time when you're involved in the tour business? When do you say I'm really having fun? Oh, all the time. This is a uh, this is my my pleasure, my passion. Passion. I like nothing more than uh, explaining about these uh, explaining about these historic spots with enthusiasm and glee to a guest who are very interested in subjects themselves. And it plays into my, my, my strengths in expository writing and speaking. I think I'm a frustrated history teacher. And so to put on these uh, open air history tours is really uh, a pure pleasure. How many uh, tours would you say now that you're doing a week? Oh, it averages out. I, I take the tours throughout the winter, even into the cold weather, even though they're outdoors for the most part. Although sometimes we go into the Smithsonian in the in the bad weather, uh, I don't average that many tours. Maybe one a week. And, and so, how does how does I'll ask you a question I asked you an hour ago? How does Ed Moser um, make a living? How do you how do you make this work? I make a living by having a, a number of rods in the fire. I work as a uh, a freelance writer or a contract writer uh, with uh, IT firms, government agencies. I give tours. Uh, I write books and get some royalties from the book from the books. So uh, I juggle. That's how uh, that's how I get through. Uh, yes. What would what would you say to someone listening to this? A younger person, if younger people ever listen to this podcast, uh, what would you say to them uh, about? They say, you know, I really like the sound of that life. What what? What would your warning be to anyone that says they want to do exactly what Ed Moser's done? Well, the cliche is to follow your passion, but to do it practically. You should definitely get involved in what you love and what you're good at, but also have a fallback. Uh, you can pursue two careers at once. You can pursue a career that uh, is, is fine and uh, pays your bills, allows you to save some money, and, that, and gives you the opportunity to pursue your passion as well. And uh, if you're good and if you stick with it, your passion may turn into your, your complete full-time job. That's the advice I, I would give. Mr. Moser, earlier book is The White House Unruly Neighborhood um, Tour Around the 
Lafayette Square. And the current book we've been talking most about is The Lost History of the Capitol, The Hidden and Tumultuous Saga of Congress and the Capitol Building. Edward P. Mosier, thank you so much for your time and giving us these stories. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.